Indeed, O Lord, the wounds of the Son of God have paid ransom for us all who by faith receive his sacrifice in our behalf. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. And be seated. We're going to open this morning to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 13. You know, when you do a series called Gospel Tales, I mean, it's never-ending. I mean, there's so much you can, you can do, and it doesn't even have to be in the Gospels. The four Gospels, texts, I mean. It can go to the book of Acts. It can go really to anywhere. Um, so it's kind of a, an open name for the, for the series, Gospel Tales. But this is number nine in the tales this time around. And um, if you were at, to ask me how I choose what they are, my answer would be, I don't know. I just do my Bible reading, and when I come to something, like an old friend of mine, a, a preacher said as he's reading the Bible, he looks at a verse and he goes, that'll preach. I'll preach that one. And he just, you just get moved in the moment, and you get uh, enveloped in the concept that Christ is teaching on, or that the, uh, the, the writer is teaching on, and uh, sometimes you get into it a day or two, and you wonder why you get in so deep, and you, can't, and you realize halfway through you can't possibly do justice to the teaching that is before us, but we do our best, and we pray that the Holy Spirit guides us in it as we come. So I'm going to ask you to open Luke chapter 13 this morning, and I'm going to read verses 22 through 30. My Bible is separated, maybe yours is, into little editorial notes of the sections, and the editors added this note. They call this section, The Way into the Kingdom. The Way into the Kingdom. And so we read this. Luke writes, And Jesus went through the cities and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. Then one said to him, Lord, are there few who are saved? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow gate, for many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open for us. And he will answer and say to you, I do not know you where you are from. Then you'll begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he'll say, I tell you, I do not know you where you are from. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. There'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God in yourselves thrust out. They'll come from the east and the west, from the north and the south, and sit down in the kingdom of God. And indeed, there are last who will be first, and there are first who will be last. O Father, in Jesus' name, open to us the scriptures this morning. Let the Holy Spirit do the teaching through your servant, O Lord, and prepare the hearts of the hearers. We pray in Jesus' name. That'll teach you to ask Jesus a question on the road. And so Luke writes... He went through the cities and villages teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. So the character of the gospel tales as I perceived it in the beginning was to seek out action sequences of the four gospels. We looked into Jesus' visit to the tomb of Lazarus. We spoke about Nicodemus' visit to, um, to the apostles one evening. 
We talked about the Lord walking on water, raising Jairus' daughter, absconding to the mountains to keep from being abducted by the mob who was intent on making him king. You remember those sections? We looked into several other scenes where there was this dramatic action described by the evangelist. Here in Luke, we see the itinerant teacher. You know what itinerant is? It means he's moving around, going from place to place. The itinerant teacher taking a moment along his preaching tour to sit and teach, and the Lord takes questions from the audience. You know, there are several places in the New Testament where after they asked questions of the Lord, the editorial note of the writer was, and they didn't dare ask him anything else. For me, this might be that day. I might have said after this, after the, the way he dealt with the question, he never answered it, by the way. He doesn't tell us how many come into the kingdom. He doesn't do that. Um, but uh, he gave this sort of, he, does, he did tell us one thing. There are a few that are saved, but there are many who are not. And it will be that way, apparently. You know, some think that there's a, a ratio. You know, we talk about handing out the Gospels of John. Um, I remember at one time, it was said in our church many years ago that if you handed out 100, 10 would get saved. And we started, I mean, I got to tell you, I never really, I, I don't think it works that way. Um, but uh, certainly, the more evangelism that you do, the more people will hear. And so... Jesus is out there willing to take questions. Imagine you have, the, you have the actual Savior right there asking him face to face. Are there few who are saved? Luke loves to describe this, the itinerant preacher Jesus going from city to city, going from village to village on a one-way pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And it's there where his teaching will finally become the issue that brings about the end of his personal ministry and his personal demise on that fateful last visit to Jerusalem. Now, I'm going to make a point here that I've made to you repeatedly over the years as to the character of Jesus' teaching method. It's my observation, it's my belief, that Jesus loves to repeat a message over and over. And why not? At each juncture in his journey, each new venue, he has, for the most part, a new audience. And so we have this other action passage. Jesus is on the road with his disciples. They're traveling through Israel. And then we have this culturally relevant passage as well, and I want to develop that somewhat this morning. I want to focus on this theme of the narrow gate as a reference that would have resonated in the popular mind of the Jews of the first century in a way that perhaps it doesn't to us without explanation. The evangelist doesn't need to explain the connection to his first century readers, but for our edification, we'll look into that connection and why this motif of the narrow gate as opposed to the broad way is so personal and so timely for the disciples of the day. We're not to just be one of the crowd and go with the crowd, and we have to train ourselves not to be that. We can't be fashionable Christians. We have to be essential Christians. You may notice that the theme here has been used elsewhere. Remember, Matthew talked about it. It's this reference to the narrow gate is given within the context of the Sermon on the Mount. Here where Jesus gives it on the road, it could be called the Sermon on the Road, I suppose. And yet the usefulness of the image has not waned. In this case, it's in response to a question posed by a listener. Verse 23, then one said to him, Lord, are there few who are saved? 
He apparently hadn't been around much with Jesus because Jesus doesn't answer yes or no questions. He doesn't give um, numbers of people who are saved. And um, I think the disciples were probably thinking in the background, boy, is he going to get it from the Lord for asking that particular question? You know, why does it matter to you how many are saved? What matters to you is are you saved and are you doing your part to see others saved? You know, remember one of the Gospels? I think it was Peter, he asked him about John, and he said, don't, he said, don't worry about John, worry about yourself, <laughs> right? So you know, Jesus isn't likely to give just a yes or no answer to something like that. Not going to happen. He'll, he'll explain his soteriology in a way that's relevant to first century Jews. Now I want to make the, the word soteriology known to us, because we don't use it. Soterion is the Greek for Savior. Soteriology is, is your view of salvation what you understand to be the method of salvation. You know, we are, we're of a Calvinistic soteriology. We believe God did the saving, God did the work, God does the choosing. There are other um, soteriologies, like the Arminian soteriology, named after the, the, um, the great Dutch theologian James Arminius. And many believe in that soteriology, where you sort of take part in it with the Lord. So there are these different philosophies. But I want us to know that that's a... That's a um, a class of theology called soteriology, all right? And so the Lord answers in a much more memorable way than one might have expected. Um, and the theme of the narrow gate is again introduced into the salvation equation. He says in verse 24, very famously, strive to enter through the narrow gate. Strive to enter through the narrow gate, for many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. There's the partial answer. I don't know if that means few are saved, but it means many are not. And many, of course, is a relative term, and Jesus doesn't get any more specific about that, not in any context that I can think of in the New Testament. In fact, one time he actually punished Israel because of David's reliance on the numbers of fighting men and horses and chariots that he had, if you remember. Um, we're not supposed to just consider our human devices. We're supposed to consider that with men, many things are impossible, but with God, all things are possible. And he holds us to that. To that. So here's that, as I said, that cultural reference that was so familiar to them and so foreign to us. Luke indicates that Jesus is not in Jerusalem at this time. He's on the way, it says. Certainly, he's not within the temple complex at this time. However, he refers to an actual gate that every year, every Jewish family makes their pilgrimage through. He's talking about an actual gate or series of gates that gets you closer to the temple itself. Now, we know from other sections of the gospel record that Jesus, when in Jerusalem, he taught from the so-called steps of the Sanhedrin. You know, I wish we had a big graph, a big picture, um, one of those uh, wonderful depictions of the ancient temple. We have so much uh, excavation that's been done, and there's so much detailed information in the Old Testament about how big everything was, the size of everything, the materials used. There was gold and bronze and cedars from Lebanon. We have so much information that they men have actually reproduced um, pictures of what the temple complex looked like. And there were these series of gates, you see. And so as you came through these series of gates, you came up to the temple proper itself, there were these steps. 
I don't know, maybe a dozen steps or so. And there was a terrace. And the, and the Sanhedrin would come out. The Sanhedrin were the ruling religious class at the time. They were Sadducees and Pharisees. All right? And they would teach from those steps. All right? Now we know from other sections of the gospel record that Jesus also taught from those steps. This was the terrace where those religious leaders would come to address the people and to teach on the law. Now Jesus on several occasions taught from these steps also. And he was surely thought presumptuous to do so. It really wasn't his place. From that perch, from that place, on that terrace, it was easy to see that those who made it all the way to the stairs to hear the teacher had come first through a broad gate in the court of the Gentiles in the outer wall of the temple complex. There was this magnificent broad gate where everyone poured through. And if it was Passover, there would be Jews that would pour through there, and there would be any number of tourists, Gentile tourists, throughout the empire who would come there too. And they'd pour through the gate, and it was very easy to get through the gate. Now there's another area there called the, the Court of the Gentiles, and the Gentiles weren't allowed to go beyond that court. So there was this smaller gate, and the Jews would go through that, and that would be, that would be for um, ethnic Jews only. So tourists thronged that city every year. They came to see the temple. It was one of the, it was one of the wonders of the ancient world. Travelers, travelers from all over the empire would come there. And so from the steps of the Sanhedrin, where the notable scholars among the Pharisees and Sadducees would sit, one could see both of these magnificent gates in the background. Only those who were of the right pedigree were allowed close to the steps where the teaching of the law was taking place. Now, they might have been able to hear it, but they couldn't come close as only the people of God at that time could come. Now, the unique architecture of the complex would be ingrained into every Jewish mind and heart. Every family would travel there three times a year for the appointed feasts. And that would be, of course, Passover, where the whole family would come, There was tabernacles, there was Pentecost, where only the men were required to come, but they would go three times a year. The people of Israel in the first first century were very familiar with the architecture of the temple complex, you see. Now, the temple complex was never really completely finished until it was destroyed in 70 AD by Vespasian's troops. But the one that was there that Herod had built rivaled all the earlier iterations of the rebuilt temple. You remember it was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar in the 6th century BC. It was rebuilt by Zerubbabel a couple of hundred years later, nowhere near the magnificence of the original. The Solomon's temple was great. Herod's exceeded them all. The temple complex and its various gates and courtyards was a magnificent structure. It was truly a wonder of the ancient world. The first entry gate was in the outer wall, as I've said. It was a truly broad gate, and those who came through it, Jew and Gentile, entered into that space known as the Court of the Gentiles. The magnificence of the complex could be seen from that courtyard. You could come in and you could see the elevated temple on the hill. Gigantic cut stones made up the foundation walls. Friends, the largest stones excavated were 45 feet long, 12 feet wide, 12 feet high. Great chunks of hewn limestone. 
It was truly Herod's masterwork. He was a great architect and did many Roman improvements to the Jewish world at that time. A few stones from this massive complex survive to this day, and it's known as the Wailing Wall of the Jews. And they still go there to pray and to worship. Now, every Jewish family would have a picture of this complex in their mind since their earliest years. In fact, Luke gives us a glimpse into this earlier in the in the gospel where he writes, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of Passover, Luke tells us. And so surely did every Jewish family. And then Luke gives us this glimpse of those pre-gospel days as no other evangelist provides. And we read this, when Jesus was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. So we have this actual time. The family of, of Nazareth went every year of Jesus' life, but Luke um, isolates this one year when Jesus was 12 years old, and that's the age of accountability among the Jews. So they brought Jesus there, and this was a different time for them. And so Luke gives us a glimpse here. He said, when they had finished the days, in other words, the feast was over, the boy Jesus lingered behind in Jerusalem. I think that's the only place in the Bible where you hear the phrase, the boy Jesus right? And Joseph and his mother did not know it. So they came with a, a, you know, presumably a large caravan of friends and relatives. And when it was over, they all hooked up and they, they met in their cars and they, or their carts, and they went back down the highway to, to Galilee. Um, they went a day's journey and found out Jesus isn't with us. And so it says, so it was that after three days, so they go back They go back into Jerusalem to find him. They have to go a Jay's journey back, and they have to look around Jerusalem to find him, and it took them three days. Can you imagine the frantic parents looking for their 12-year-old son? Have you ever lost a kid? We lost Joe once on first beach in Newport, and uh, I know you know the story, and I won't bore you with it again, but it's a frantic, hopefully, few minutes when you lose a kid. You ever turn around, you're at a carnival or something, you turn around, the kids are gone? I mean, the thoughts that go through your head, you can imagine. They look, they, they've gone three days looking for him and a day's traveling. And so then Luke writes, And they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. Friends, he was almost certainly sitting on those steps with the renowned teachers of the day in that little snippet of, their, of his life. And so Luke writes, And all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and his answers. So Jesus was already displaying his uniqueness, even at a very young age. And when his parents found him and noted the panic that they felt about his absence, he famously said to them, why did you seek me? Can you imagine this 12-year-old? Why did you seek me? Did you not know I must be about my father's business? It's almost as if he's saying, don't you remember I'm immaculately conceived? Joseph, don't you remember I'm not really your son? Mary, don't you remember you're with child by the Holy Spirit as the angel said you would be? Right? But he's Jesus. And he has to obey the commandment to honor his mother and father. So he doesn't say all those things. He asked a rhetorical question. Did you not know I would be here about my father's business? And so from his earliest years, he was made familiar with the structure and architecture of that magnificent edifice. You see, it's very much ingrained 
into the Jewish experience. And so is every Jewish family and every Jewish child. So when he references the narrow gate, surely he intends to conjure the image of those who would strive to come close to the seat of teaching in the temple. And so he begs the question, how close to the teachings of Christ are you willing to come? How much will you hear and not heed? Now for the time, in that time, only Jewish children could come. Only Jewish men and women could pass through that soreg. The soreg was a, a latticed rail that went around the outer temple complex. And only Jews could go past that. And this is the rail that separates Gentile Taurus from Jewish wor- worshipers. It was believed that Herod himself, who was an eth- ethnic Edomite and not an ethnic Israelite, he was Jewish by conversion, but even Herod never passed beyond that narrow inner gate of the rail leading to the temple itself and those magnificent steps. It's believed by some commentators that this is the wall of separation referred to by Paul to the Ephesians where he wrote, He himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby by putting to death the enmity. And so we see that though the broad way and the narrow way make for a reasonably useful illustration of the varying paths men take, if we knew nothing of actual gates, it's still a pretty reasonable illustration, right? They represent for some a far more concrete picture of cultural Judaism of Jesus' time. And so we have the reference to the gate. And now we shall take up the reference to the striving in order that we may enter So there is the gate that's in their minds. And he said, strive to enter. It seems Jesus would have his adherents to strive. Now, friends, men only strive for things that don't come easy. Why would you strive for something that comes easy, right? They strive for something because they deem it worth striving for. What do you deem worth striving for in life? We should note that our doctrine of man in this regard, is that man is not designed to receive truth. We all know that, right? Man is not designed to receive truth. Well, he was originally designed that way, but through sin, he lost that ability. His natural constitution is not predisposed to receiving spiritual sight, much less immutable truths. That's why Jesus doesn't throw them around to the masses all the time. Sometimes he says things and he says, seeing you may see and not perceive, and hearing you may hear and not understand. Then he takes his own beloved aside and and unravels the parable for them. He doesn't, as he said, cast pearls before swine. In other words, you can't just ask any question and expect a ready answer for Jesus, not unless you're striving for it. Paul wrote about this nature of man to the Corinthians when he said, The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. Indeed, they are foolishness to him. You ever share the gospel with someone and they think you're foolish? Well, don't be surprised. They can't receive the truth that you receive. Not yet, at least. And then it says, nor can he know them because they're spiritually discerned and the natural man is spiritually dead. And so man has to strive for what he can't easily obtain. If you want to know the way to eternal life and you haven't been regenerate through faith in Christ, you have no access to those truths. Now, we've seen many times that Jesus counts striving as an act of faith. 
We can think of the paralytic. Remember the paralytic? His relatives were crowded out of the house, so they went up on the roof and they broke through the roof and they lowered their brother down. Friends, that is striving, right? Striving to be close to Jesus, right? We think of the woman with the flow of blood, 12 years, remember? She was supposed to quarantine. She wasn't allowed out in public. She risked her life to come out in the crowd to touch the hem of the garment. She was striving to get close to Jesus. We haven't talked about it recently, but remember the Syrophoenician woman? This is a troublesome passage for some. The Syrophoenician woman who asked for the demon to be cast out of her daughter. Syrophoenician refers to Syria and Lebanon. All right? And she's of another, you know, ethnic background than Israelite. All right? She came to ask Jesus. She recognized that he was the healer. And so she comes to ask Jesus for help for her daughter. And what does he do? He turns her away. She was a Gentile, and he said that here that the children of Israel would be served first from the Lord's table. He said what might have been considered by our woke culture today to be offensive. And it might have even been an ethnic slur by the Savior. In fact, I believe it is. Let me give you the passage. Jesus said to her, she came and asked for her daughter to be healed, to have the demon cast out. She knew Jesus had the power. And he said, let the children be filled first. For it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. Pretty pretty scathing. But rather than be insulted by the comment, she could have said, well, I guess I've come to the wrong place. Not going to get any help here. That's what most of us would have done, right? Protested. Made some signs. But rather than be insulted, she persists. In fact, she owns the insult and runs with it. She owns the characterization of being called a dog at the Lord's table. And so she says, yes, Lord. That Essentially, that's true what you say. We're outside the family of Israel. But she says, even the dogs under the table eat from the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this saying, go your way, the demon has gone out of your daughter. She persisted. She strove to get close to the blessings of Christ. I have to believe this is the kind of thing he's talking about. And so we may see that it's this striving, it's this unwillingness to be turned away easily that the Lord Jesus respects as faith. Have you heard a convicting sermon lately? Let me ask you this. Are you homosexual? And are you turned off by the fact that Christianity counts that as sin against God? Could you take the teaching of Jesus and own the conviction of sin in your heart and still persist? Because where else are you going to go? There is no Syrophoenician Messiah. He's Jewish. He's the only one. And so it's this striving. It's this unwillingness to be turned away that I think the Lord is talking about here. Most people are too proud to be turned away, are told that they told what they truly need to hear. But the faithful strive to make sense of it and persist in coming closer and closer to the source of truth and life. And so we can see that it's this striving, it's this unwillingness to be turned away that is referred to here as the spiritual narrow gate, if you will. Are you in an adulterous affair? Does it offend you that Jesus said, thou shalt not commit adultery? That's a thing that separates you from God. And so he goes on. 
verses 25 through 27. When once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, Lord, open, open the door for us, he'll answer and say to you, I do not know you. You haven't come close enough. How would I know you? You haven't striven. I was there. Where are you? And then they try to convince the Lord that they were indeed there. They say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he'll say, I tell you, I don't know you. I don't know where you're from. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. What's he talking about? He's talking about people who heard the word but didn't strive to come closer to the word, didn't dare to be convicted by it and change their lives. How many people do you suppose were in the Jordan when John was preaching his baptism of repentance who just took the baptism with no repentance? I would suggest to you quite a number. How many people came out? The multitudes came out to Jesus. Where were they at the cross? Now, I've said many times to you that salvation is free. We all know that. That's our doctrine. But discipleship, discipleship can cost you everything. So in the salvation message of the Lord, there is this continual sense of striving. You know, I remember something Pastor Ken said many years ago, sitting in my living room in the big chair, teaching on life from the Scriptures. And Pastor Ken had a lot of concerns. He had a big congregation at the time. And he was a man of commerce. He had a couple of businesses that he ran very successfully. And sometimes, because we were a close-knit group, he would unload some of the strife. You remember some of the things he was going through. I mean, I even knew what his electric bill was for the plant because he said it so many times. It was in the tens of thousands. Oh, man, it's so hard to be in business. And he would, he would unload some of these things. And then he said one day, and I know Karen will remember this because we've said it many times, the Lord never lets me get to the place where it's just easy. And I know that's where I am. I mean, if I have a little easy few hours, I'm happy for that. The Lord never lets me get to the place where it's just easy. We have to strive to enter. And there's this constant theme of expenditure of effort in the Lord's teaching. Now, I know some of you will tune out here. You'll think that I've forgotten that salvation's free. You can't strive for it. It cannot be earned. Even the most intensive striving cannot merit you eternal life. We, do, we know that's our doctrine, and it seems like I'm speaking against that today. Eternal life is a thing that is gained by surrender more than by striving. We've said it many times. Give in to God. Give up on your own resources. And surely you'll see the kingdom of God. But here's the rub, friends. For whom is surrender an easy thing? You know, when we say, oh, surrender it all to God, just give in. For whom is that easy? That's a difficult thing to let go of the reins, isn't it? Doesn't a person have to strive within himself in order to give over the reins of his life to another, even to Christ? I remember a time in my early married life, in my early business career where I found out that the more I worked, the more money I made. Who knew? Right? I was ambitious. I was young. I was energetic. I'm still all, some of those things. But I discovered this worth ethic for myself. All I have to do is alleviate, to alleviate lack is to apply myself more to the tasks at hand. The sooner the job is done, the sooner I'm paid, the more work I can fit into a unit of time, the more profitable will be my efforts. There's this striving. Don't tell me to give that over. I need to do that. In fact, I go through the scriptures and I, and I find this theme over and over. I'll get to it. But if you were to say to me at that time that surrendering would gain me more than striving, I would have thought you foolish. 
It simply doesn't make sense that slowing down, taking it easy, letting go of the strife embedded in honest effort, the effort it takes to complete a project, is somehow a way to greater returns. Giving in, taking it easy, taking a holiday was not profitable, not for a young business. And I think that most of us have found that this is true in our lives. The more we work, the more we strive, the more we plot and plan and build, the more we'll profit materially. The lazy man has less because he's applied himself less. The Proverbs are full of this kind of advice. We read this from Solomon. How long will you slumber, O sluggard? A sluggard is a lazy person. When will you rise from your sleep? So shall your poverty come on you like a prowler and your need like an armed man. Friends, if you want to alleviate lack, you have to strive for some things in life. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And then he says again, so shall your poverty come like a prowler and your need like an armed man. Now, I would stand by this principle of striving for the things we want, the things we need with regard to to our day-to-day material needs. I'll stand by that. It seems that the Proverbs teach that. And we all know how to strive on some level. Yet we're told throughout the New Testament that the opposite is true where salvation is concerned. And we know that it is. It is rather than striving, it is this surrender that is the way to salvation. Paul wrote of it many times. To Titus he wrote, It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but by His mercy he saved us. Paul said this thing also to the Romans where he said, it's not of him who wills, it's not of him who runs, uh, but it's of God who shows mercy. So in order to gain salvation, the striving ceases, externally at least. So why does the Lord speak of striving to enter? How is his answer compatible with the soteriology of the New Testament, which is one of ceasing to strive? So I'm going to answer you this way. The striving spoken of here is the effort it takes to subdue personal pride. There's the real battle. The real battle is inward. It's not outward doing all these things, but it is inward. It's the effort to be willing to leave behind the well-traveled road and take the road less traveled, to paraphrase the bard Robert Frost. It's the ability to renounce your personal popularity or your personal need to be accepted by the majority. Friends, that's something that takes effort. That's not easy for most people to do. Everyone's going this way. I'm not going to go with them. I'm not going to follow the crowd. This is something you need to teach your children before they become teenagers. Believe me with this. You don't want them all to just be followers because that's the way everyone's going. Because we know that is the way to destruction. We know at least that much of an answer of the man's question to the Lord. We all say we take personal pride in our work. It has our name on it, so to speak. And so we build our lives on this principle. Our salvation, however, is not like that, friends. Your name is not on your salvation. Only the name of the Lord may be on the work of salvation. And so the striving intended by the Lord here is more inward in your case than outward. The striving is inward. It has more to do with subduing the flesh than applying the flesh. I buffet my body, Paul said. I bring it into subjection. It's a purely directional effort. Friends, this is the let's make a deal section of the gospel. There are two doors. Which one do you choose? We have before us this big, beautiful entryway with spacious room for everyone to pass through. 
and all the best people and all the smartest, the most notable and accomplished and famous are going in that door. That door's for me. But I have to play the fool and say that their road is not my road. And that takes a form of inward striving that's not common to man. And you will get objection from even people very close to you when you make commitments to God. It's our human tendency, friends, to follow the crowd. All kinds of studies on this. It's our human tendency to follow the crowd. There's a broad way, friends. Wiser than men than me are taking it. Smart people are heading toward the wide open gate and the broad way. And this is where Matthew's version of the theme is even more descriptive. Jesus said this in his Sermon on the Mount, enter by the narrow gate, he said again. Wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. Friends, if everyone's going a certain way, it's probably the wrong way. And, and, and Christ gives us this compass to see that. There are many who go in by it, but narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. Doesn't say how many, but he does say it's a few. It takes a great victory in our personal spiritual battles to come to the place where we're determined not to be one of the crowd. It takes working our way beyond the sore egg beyond the middle wall of separation, beyond the sayings that are strange to our ears and offensive to our delicate sensibilities. We must be as the Syrophoenician woman and receive the words of Jesus without offense. It's a test, friends. In each of these cases, it was a test. And it's this striving to be close to him that passes the test. It's his prompting that he's doing. He sent many away with a word. He said, eat my flesh, drink my blood, and they followed him no more. These are those who refuse to strive for the only thing in this life or the next worth striving for, which is the love of Christ, the pardon of God for our sins. Friends, we can hardly get the masses to come to church. Why? Because the broad road leads to leisure. It's too much fun, I guess, not to be there. It leads to sports or games or parties or events. And the narrow way is to put aside all that and sit at the steps of teaching. But even that may not be enough striving for the Lord. Because we can see it readily from the verses we're considering. The people are surprised that they're put out because they did come and hear the teaching. They did eat and drink with him in their presence, they said. And they pleaded that. And he said, you taught in our streets. In other words, we were there. So friends, there is surely a narrower road than the broad gate. But it too is all too broad. Just coming to church, right? Just coming to church. Is that your answer? We sat in your presence. We came to church. I, I deserve some benefit for that. We ate and drank with you. We listened to what you had to say. Friends, I know and I would presume that you know as well many people who are outwardly religious. Friends, I know people that go to Mass every day and have no knowledge of God. And they will be one of those people saying, but we were there. And you talk to them, and they know nothing of the nature of Christ. They're striving outwardly and not inwardly. I know of some who attend every day of the week, and yet I also see that these have never come close to the true teachings of Scripture or to knowing the true nature of Christ and his gospel, and these are as godless as all the others. It's always been true, and I think it still is, that the prayer group of the church, the prayer meeting is the least well-attended meeting. There are needs, but where are the supplicants? There are sins, but where are the confessors? There are trials and trouble, but where are the saints to plead with God for the answers and for his solutions? 
for the strength to move forward in faith when the answers we hope for do not come. Imagine praying and laboring in prayer day in and day out and the answers do not come. Where are the true saints? I'll tell you. They're like the young Jesus sitting on the steps among the elders going about their father's business. Prayer, friends, is a form of striving. If it's done right, it's not an easy task. It's a serious business to enter into the throne room of Almighty God and seek refuge there. Worship is participatory. It's not just showing up. It's not just singing. It's not just giving. It's hearing the word proclaimed and treasuring it for what it is. It's that pearl of great price, that pearl that costs us all we have. Strive to enter, the Savior said. It's not enough to remind the Lord after the door is shut that you were present. And you got the check mark of present when the word was proclaimed. It's coming into the presence of God and being known by him. You notice he said, you didn't, he didn't say, you didn't know me. He said, I didn't know you. That's an interesting turn of a phrase. It's been said that Christianity is not what you know, it's who you know. We can see from the text that it's also who knows you. And so the anger of the Lord is aroused by the pretenders. And he says, depart from me. They made their case, and it only made him more angry. Friends, you can strive or not strive, but the offer expires at some point. He said, I don't know you. The door's already shut. Friends, once it's slammed shut, it doesn't open. Doesn't it say somewhere in Revelation, the door that no one can, can, I, could, no one can shut and the door that no one can open? Only God can do that. He spoke it else, elsewhere where he said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name, and then I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now, you might ask me this morning, and I wouldn't blame you, if you said, Pastor, how do I strive and what do I strive for? And I'll say that each one has to examine his own life and answer those things. Strive now for the answer. Strive while it's yet day. For the night will come, the offer will expire, and the door will be shut. Friends, the message of the gospel comes with some urgency. Strive is an urgent word, right? The Lord did not answer if few would be saved, but he did answer that many will not. And how shall I answer you what the Lord did not answer? He did, however, give us a grim incentive and you know, pastors don't like to end on this, on this kind of note, but Jesus does it all the time. And so what did he say in the last few verses to answer the man's question? He said, there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and yourselves thrust out. They'll come from the east and the west, from the north and the south, and they'll sit down in the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are last who will be first, and there are first who will be last And if you want me to explain that, I need another whole sermon to do it. Our Father, in Jesus' name, we praise you, Lord, for all that you are and have done for us. But let us come before you fearfully, Father, and recognize there is a price to pay for not coming close enough to Christ to be recognized by him. We ask you, Father, take down this middle wall and bring us close And let us know that you are our God and we are your people, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.